Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Merry Christmas. I know that a lot of people travel during Christmas, and so uh, we may have a bunch of new people here today. My name is Frank, if you're new, and you are at Redemption Arcadia. You're the, at the Arcadia-flavored Redemption. Uh, Redemption Church is actually one church with seven congregations, so there are six other congregations across Arizona that are uh, meeting as well today and tonight, and so we join them in worshiping God and in proclaiming the gospel. Uh, A couple of things before we get started, just to kind of remind you of what's happening in our our community here. Uh, Christmas Eve services, Tuesday night in two days, 4.30 and uh, 6 o'clock. They'll be a little bit less than an hour long and uh, be mostly music. And uh, it'll be a candlelight service, a family service. So just bring everybody in here, whoever's with you, just bring them in here. And uh, so we look forward to that. And then uh, just want to remind you that a lot of things coming up after the first of the year, January 5th, we're going to have a guest uh, preacher, guest speaker here. Um, his name is Dominic Grimaldi. He is uh, uh, one of the most gospel-centered people I've ever met, a, a marvelous communicator uh, with a really interesting background. That's all I'm going to tell you about him, and, and uh, I would encourage you to be here. He's got a wonderful story about how God has saved him. Uh, every time I've heard him speak, it's been a blessing to those who have heard it, and uh, so I would really encourage you to be here. And in fact, if ever there was a day for you to bring a friend, besides Christmas Eve, which is always an easy one, but if ever there was a day for you to bring a friend, um, this would be the day, January 5th, to hear Dominic speak. It would be a blessing to anybody to hear him. Uh, January 12th is our Redemption Anniversary Sunday, and so we're going to be celebrating that uh, with all the other Redemption congregations, but in particular in Arcadia, we're going to celebrate it by having baptisms here. So if you've been waiting for our next baptism service to get baptized, now's your chance. So contact the office, let us know that you want to be baptized, and we'll get you set with that. And then January 19th, we get to get back to our study of Romans uh, that we started last year on Easter Sunday, well last year, I'm sorry, this past year. Uh, on on Easter Sunday. We're going to continue. We're going to start in Romans uh, chapter 8 with this study. We'll probably be in Romans 8 for about 10 weeks. That's a huge chapter, really important, but we'll get back to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. Uh, One last thing. Uh, Last couple weeks, many of you have noticed we've had a coffee bar here. Uh, We're providing uh, free coffee, free drip coffee, and then if you want a a, a, um, specialty drink, uh, they're going to charge you for that, but otherwise, uh, we would encourage you to take advantage of that. We're going to try this out for eight or ten weeks, see how that works. We've had some good feedback. We appreciate that, people appreciating it, Uh, but one thing I will mention is if you're starting to plan your life around whether or not we're going to have coffee in here, they won't be here next week. They're going to be out of town. Uh, next Sunday, but after that on the 5th, they'll be back here and we're going to be doing it for at least another eight weeks and then, and then we'll evaluate it. So uh, I would encourage you, even on the way out, grab a cup of coffee uh, as you go. Let me pray and then we're going to get into our fourth Sunday, our fourth message of uh, Advent. Holy God, we are thankful for all that you do for us and who you are and, and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ whose birth we're going to celebrate in just a couple of days, the incarnation of God. God come in the flesh. God come to to save his people. And God who will come again to reconcile all things to him and make all things new. That's what Advent's about, is to look look forward to that. And so we we do that. We, We come to you this morning with joy and with hope. And if we come to you not even knowing you and not understanding those things, I would pray that this morning uh, the words that you have for us would stir our hearts 
that we would come, that we would understand that our only hope is in you. God, I pray that for everybody here. I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would, you would speak through me, that you would move me out of the way, that, that there would be no obstructions, no obstacles, no distractions, and that your pure word would be heard. God, that, that lives would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power of your resurrected Son. God, I pray these things that we might have a blessing today in hearing your word and in singing to you, and God, that you would be glorified in all we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in, in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 19 and 20, uh, this is Isaiah describing the future of those who embrace the gospel. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will, will end. And then in the New Testament, at the birth of Jesus, Luke records this in Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the Heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in, in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is well pleased. We are in our fourth week of this series on Advent. We're calling it the Sounding Joy because, because Advent is supposed to be a time of joy. Uh, we run into trouble in our culture and, and in our time. Uh, we run into uh, this time of season and it becomes a time of stress and a time of worry and a time of mounting debt and a time of of people-pleasing and a time of busyness and, and, and we get so distracted. We're distracted all year long, but we get especially distracted at this time when we really should be focused on, on Advent, which means arrival, the arrival of God in flesh in His Son, Jesus Christ, and the celebration of that birth, the birth of the Savior, the, the one who has come to save His people, to to pay the debt of sin to God and to be raised from the dead for newness of life. And then because He was raised, the promise that He will advent again, that He will come again, that He's going to come a second time to make everything right. We talked a lot about that last week. What would it, what would it be like to, to live in a place where everything was set right? Where everything was, was the way it was supposed to be? We talked about longing for a Savior who is powerful enough to reconcile and unify all things and what it would be like to live in that type of a world. In previous weeks, we've talked about longing for a Savior who's more powerful than sin because sin is pretty powerful. It, it has taken us hostage. We're slaves to it. And we need a Savior. And, and, and then the second week, we talked about longing for a, for a Savior who is broader and wider and bigger and deeper and, and more pervasive than sin because sin is, other than Christ, the most powerful thing there is in the world. And so we, we long for a Savior who's more powerful than that and we talked about that as well. And all of it culminates this week in, in longing for a Savior who can and will create a brand new community for us. And again, all of this is, is from, from Colossians Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. As Eugene just read, I'll read it again to remind us of what we're looking at. Paul writes these words, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
In other words, he is preeminent before and after and above and below all things. He is eternal. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Here's what Paul is saying there. Everything that you can see and and even the things that you can't see, everything that has ever been, everything that ever will be, uh, everything that you think doesn't exist but does exist, the things that you know exist, everything was created by Jesus, created by him, through him, and for him. He's created everything, and so Paul gives us those examples just to make sure we understand. And he says all things were created through him. That word can be translated by him as well. And for him. He didn't just create them, but he created them for himself. We were created for him to be in relationship and fellowship with him, reconciled to him. And then verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what we talked about last week. He can reconcile and unify all things. And then this week we talk about this, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, that he is supreme. This is about the supremacy of Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We we look at this passage from 1 Corinthians. Some scholars say it is the most soaring paragraph in the entire New Testament about the supremacy of Christ. And what we're told is that he, he came to save us and reconcile us. And not only us, but all things. But Paul is also telling us that he came so that we might have something to look forward to. That there's something in the future that, that, that we can have hope. That we can have joy. Because we have something to look forward to. And, and what it is, is this new community that he's going to create. And he can do this because, specifically, Paul says he's the firstborn of the dead. That, that word firstborn means a lot in their culture. It means a lot in their context. In, in our context, we have birth order books and we talk about who, who's, who's the oldest and who's the youngest, but it doesn't really matter that much. But in their culture, being the firstborn carried weight. It carried glory. It carried influence. If you were the firstborn male, you would get a double share of the inheritance from your parents when they died. There was something significant about being the firstborn. And that's why Paul uses that word here. He's trying to let us know that that Jesus is before all things and preeminent in all things. He is supreme in all things. And so Paul tells us not only was he the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of incarnation, but he was also the firstborn of the dead, which means the firstborn of the resurrection. He lives now. And that's why we can put our faith in him and in his promises and have hope in him and we can have joy in him. He created everything. He holds all things together. And by his resurrection, he is also the king over death. And so we live. And as a result, he can also create our coveted community. And so we should long for it. We should look forward to it. It should give us hope. And I admit, I long for this community. I look forward to it. I love the scripture that we're going to look at today. You can turn there now if you want. It's Revelation 21 and 22. I love this stuff. And I don't want you, I don't want you to get crazy. I, oh, Frank's an end times freak. No, I'm not. I just love the promise of where we're going to be someday. 
I admit I study Revelation maybe a little bit more than most Christians do. I'm not at the end of that spectrum where you have to get worried and run out of here, but I do study it more than many do. But I love it because of the promise that it gives us. It's interesting. Later in the book of Colossians, which we just read from, in in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says this, and he's talking about what we're going to look at in Revelation. He says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's saying this new community is coming. We can set our hearts on it. I'm part of a, I wasn't, sorry, not anymore. I was part of a tradition years ago when God saved me. A a Christian tradition, a Christian denomination. Uh, One of their favorite things to say was this. Some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before. I heard it a lot where I was. My experience, though, tells me something a little bit different. My experience tells me that we don't set our hearts on the things above enough. That we're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. I'm guilty of that myself. The distractions of this world, everything on this earth, the glittery stuff, the pretty stuff, the stuff that appeals to my eyes, the stuff that appeals to my flesh, my pleasure, I get distracted by this stuff. I'm so earthly minded, I don't have my heart set on the things above as I should. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, again, about what we're going to look at today in Revelation, he writes this, And he, God, has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. And that head would be Christ. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Jerry Sitzer, who's a church historian, and he's a professor of church history at a a university called Whitworth University in, in Washington. In one of his books on church history, he writes this. This is his description of the church. The church is a community of sinners who have found salvation through Christ, who care deeply for one another as saints in the making, and who proclaim in word and deed that God plans to restore the entire world to himself through Jesus Christ and bring a new community. And so Advent, the birth of Christ, calls us to look forward to the second Advent, the second coming of Christ, when the new Jerusalem comes. It's, it's, it's okay. We're in a church where you can admit that you do things like this. How many of you are movie fans? You like movies? It's okay. Raise your hands. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. You like movies? Okay. I'm a big movie fan. Love movies. Love good storytelling. Okay. You like, you like trailers, right? You like the trailers too, right? I, I go to the movies and sometimes I feel like, you know, the, the 15 or 20 minutes of trailers before the actual movie starts is better than the actual movie. You know, I look forward to those too to see what's coming. By the way, when I was a kid, trailers were not called trailers. They were called something else. Anybody remember? Previews. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you, other old people. Thank you. (laughs) What's the purpose of a trailer? What's the purpose of a preview? It helps us to look forward to something that's going to be bigger and better. We see a movie trailer and we say to ourselves, or, or if you're weird, you say it out loud. You say, I can't wait to experience the bigger and better version of that. 
It's a representation of what's coming, and it gets us excited. But the fullness of what's coming is so much better. Many of you know I'm a Godfather guy. I love good storytelling. Best two movies ever made, Godfather 1 and 2. They were made when I was a kid, so I had to see them on, on, on uh, videotape later on. They were made in, uh, I think, 70 and 72 or 72 and 74. And I was so enamored with these movies and so enamored with the story in this. And I read the book, and Mar- I've read all of Mario Puzo's books, as a matter of fact. Even the one his daughter had to finish because he died before he finished it. And I remember in the late 80s when the trailers for Godfather 3 started coming out. I was so excited I can't wait to experience the bigger and better version of that. I was so excited that the day the movie came out, I played hooky from work and was first in line. I was the line, actually. (laughs) Couldn't wait. It wasn't worth it. I should have gone to work. But nevertheless, it did its job. Okay. Well, we only have a preview, a trailer of the New Jerusalem right now. It is a magnificent trailer, but it's just a piece. And it's put into language that you and I in our finite minds can sort of understand. But what it represents and what it tells us is coming is absolutely magnificent. And that should give us hope. In the New Jerusalem, you and I are going to join with God as co-laborers as it was originally designed. And we're going to make culture with God. And we're going to celebrate the perfect fruits of that labor. It's going to be awesome. And so we look at Revelation 21 and 22 today. Just a few verses. I'll sort of narrate the others for us. And you need to understand that at the end of Revelation 20, John, who wrote Revelation, as he's been told by Jesus to write it, and as he's been guided around to see these things by the angels, he makes sure that we understand at the end of 20 that there is going to be a final judgment, that there's going to be a a separating of the sheep and the goats, that this is really going to happen. And that the sheep, God's people, are going to be included in the, in the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. And he starts in verse 1 of chapter 21. And those first four verses read this way. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That sounds like a great place. John says at the beginning, he says, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The the Greek word there that we translate passed away does not mean, as many people think, it doesn't mean obliterated or tossed aside, but rather the new earth It means that the new earth will be a radical makeover, a a radical remodeling, if you will, of the very earth that we have right now. In other words, it's going to be the earth the way it was supposed to be before the corruption of sin entered the world in Genesis 3. That's what we're going to experience. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, writes this, God never really gave up on his plans that humans would live forever on earth. It's just going to be a new earth. And John says that The sea was no more. 
that mean there's not going to be an ocean or a sea anywhere in, in, in heaven? We're not exactly sure, but most scholars will tell you that the reason John put that in there is because in, in the ancient's mind, the sea, the idea, the concept of the sea, of the ocean, represented to them everything that was bad in the world. It represents chaos, darkness, evil, wickedness, insecurity. So John is saying, none of those things will be around anymore. All of that has passed away. There's going to be no more bad stuff. You and I look around at this world today and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is messed up. But in fact, in the New Jerusalem, it won't be like that at all. And then notice the bride language in, in verse 2. The bride The new Jerusalem is going to be the bride. Who is the bride of Christ today? It's the church. The church is. So this means that the new Jerusalem is going to be the church. We are going to be the church together with God in heaven. And then verses 3 and 4 tell us that there won't be any more death or mourning or crying or pain. And the reason is because the old order of things has passed away. And we see that one of the reasons the new earth is new is because The old order has passed away and there's no longer any sin or corruption. Sin and corruption, that's the old order. Injustice, unrighteousness. Now we're going to have a a new order, a better order. The originally planned and created order. The way things are supposed to be. And understand that Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 are specifically written to accomplish two things. Number one, it's to begin the description of the new creation by God, which has as its specific purpose, he and his people dwelling together in community for eternity. That's the new community. And secondly, as Christ followers read this, we should be strengthened in our faith and hope because the church always faces challenges and oppression here and we're sent on mission here, but not there. It's going to be different. We're just going to be the church there. And Jesus is a Savior who has the power to create this new community. And then you look at the next four verses, 5 through 8. John writes this. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The the instruction from Jesus in verse 5 to John to write all of this down. Understand, God wants people to know about this. He cares. Peter tells us he desires that no one should perish. But it's also very important that Jesus says, I am making everything new. All those things we talked about last week, relationship, family, community, sex, food, work, all of that is going to be made new. And then verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, it is done. And I am the Alpha and the Omega. That, that, that Alpha and Omega language is the idea that it's, it's, it's a way of saying, it's a poetic way of saying, I'm before all things, I'm after all things, I'm above all things, I'm below all things. 
everything exists because of me. It's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. It's a poetic way of saying that. In other words, God has ruled over all of history from beginning to end. And then as you begin to read through the rest of chapter 21, verses 9 through 27, our, job, our John describing in great detail this city, the new Jerusalem, as one of the seven angels takes him around and, and shows him around. And John is recording the details. And of course, this city is magnificent. And, and I'll just pick out a few things to describe that, that he mentions. The new Jerusalem specifically contains the glory of God. Where we currently live now doesn't always have the best representation of that because creation has been corrupted by sin. But it won't be like that in the new Jerusalem. Creation will be exactly as it was meant to be. And the glory of God will shine through absolutely unfettered. It it won't be opaque. It won't be marred by sin. We'll see it perfectly and beautifully. We also see in chapter 21 and 22 that the number 12 is prevalent. That's a, that's a, that's a biblical number that, that represents completeness and wholeness and perfection. We see also that Israel is honored. And then we see that the, the new city is adorned with lots of jewels, lots of precious stones, and plenty of gold. It's a lot of gold. And then here's a pretty important feature of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is going to be the bride again. The current bride is the church, but with the coming of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, there's really no longer a need for the church in its missional sense because now everything is the kingdom of God. The church's primary mission in this world is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to people, and, and to be purveyors of the kingdom of God here. But the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God come together fully in the glory of God. And so sin and corruption are wiped out. And so there's no need for us to be necessarily missional, but just to live in harmony with each other and with God. And so the new bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem. And more specifically, it's the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. It will be us. And understand, there are some people, who, as I've read, who, who read Revelation, the rest of Revelation 21, and and they don't really buy the idea that the New Jerusalem is a real city. They say that the language John is using is mostly metaphorical and illustrative of something that's bigger and better, that we really can't understand it, that it's not a literal place, and I understand that argument. But others also say that John's language in in these verses is so detailed, so specific, and so concrete that he has to be describing a real place as it actually is. They they say, for instance, that... um, uh, in, in, verse, in chapters 21 and 22, the word city is used 15 times to describe the New Jerusalem. Scholars say John wouldn't have used that word so many times if it wasn't an actual, real city that he was describing. And, and he even goes so far as to give us the measurements of the city. He says that the, the city is a cube. It's, it's um, 12,000 stadia on each side. And if you translate 12,000 stadia into modern mileage. It's a little bit short of 1,400 miles on all sides. Have you ever thought about that? That's a big cube. That's going to be able to hold a lot. Okay? It's also interesting that the only other place in the Bible described as a cube is the Holy of Holies in the temple. So this description suggests that the New Jerusalem is the new temple. And also... 
as we translate 12,000 stadia into modern mileage, some scholars would say, and I think they have a point, maybe we shouldn't do that because there's that number 12 again, which is symbolic. And what John is trying to say is that it, it's a multiple of 12 that is infinite. It's, it's too big to even describe. And I look at that and I say, okay, I'm fine either way. Either way, it's honking big, right? And that's what John is trying to tell us. It's big enough to hold all of God's people. And finally, I, I think about in 1 Kings chapter 6, another Old Testament book, when King Solomon built the temple, the sanctuary was completely covered with gold. And so all the gold in the New Jerusalem is likely another allusion to the temple. In fact, in verse 22 of chapter 21, John writes this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So, so I even see some irony here. The New Jerusalem is shaped the way it is to remind the people of the temple, and yet there is no temple. There is no church in the New Jerusalem, and there's no need for the temple. Because the new Jerusalem is the temple. It is the church. It's the way things are supposed to be. Towards the end of chapter 21, we're told that that there is no need for the sun or the moon uh, to shine on the city. This is reminiscent of of that passage from Isaiah that I read to you right at the very beginning of this message. There's no need for the sun or the moon to shine on the city because, and I quote, the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, here you go. Understand, it doesn't say there won't be a sun or the moon. It doesn't say those things won't exist. It just says that the New Jerusalem won't need their light. You see, in many ways, the New Jerusalem resembles creation in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall, the Garden of Eden. And and God went to great pains to create the sun and the the moon and the stars and to make that a part of paradise. So I I really believe that there still will be the sun and the moon and the stars. It's just that their light won't be needed because the light will be furnished by by God the Father and the Lamb. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven writes this, Just as as Eden is our backward-looking reference point for heaven, the new earth is our forward-looking reference point. We should expect the new earth to be like Eden, only better. That's what Scripture promises. We're also told at the end of chapter 21 that there will be nations and kings. Really? Nations and kings in the New Jerusalem. That's interesting. So it seems as though there's going to be individuality, ethnicity, and hierarchy in heaven. And most of us look at that and go, wait a minute, that that can't be right. Those are bad things. Those are things that are causing all of our problems right now. That there are differences in people and there's individuality and there's hierarchies and power and and all of this stuff. I I choose to look at it this way. The the corruption of sin has taken things that God sees as good and messes them all up. You and I have never, ever, ever, ever seen or lived in a sinless, just and right place. So how do we know that these things, the nations and the kings, won't be absolutely magnificent under sinless circumstances? God created them and they're going to be there as they were meant to be and so they will be good. Finally, we're told at the end of 21, there's no reason for the gates of the city to shut and be locked. Now that should have been very interesting to the ancients because back then, your defense at night was to shut and lock the gates. Everybody, sh- every city shut and locked their gates 
And if they didn't do that, evil was going to come in. People were going to attack them. It was a problem. It was their defense. Every city back then shut and locked their gates. And you and I understand that. We lock our doors at home. Not only at night, but most of us are locking our doors now even during the day. Here you go. Even the happiest place on earth, Disneyland, they lock and shut their gates every night. Even Disneyland knows that there's evil lurking outside of Disneyland. So why not in the New Jerusalem? It's because we're told no more evil lurking outside of the gates. God is taking care of that. Randy Alcorn writes this, It must be maddening to Satan that we are now entitled to live in the very place that he was kicked out of. So now we wrap up. We look at a little bit more description of the, of the new city the final heaven and what it may be lo- uh, maybe it'll look like there. The first five verses of chapter 22. John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lambs through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. There's a crop every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be but the throne of God and, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Again you you see these descriptions, there's this river, this, this magnificent river that contains in it pure, always available, always accessible, wonderful water. And, and again, we kind of blow by that in Western civilization because we, we take our water for granted. The fact that we have such easy accessibility to, to good, clean water. But the ancients look at that and they say, that's a big deal. Clean, accessible water was a very challenging thing for the ancients to find. And so this description meant a lot to the people that were receiving it, the people that John was writing it too. One of the reasons the, the gospel is so exalted in places on earth now that still doesn't have, that still don't have uh, accessibility to clean water is because of promises like this. They look at this and they get it. They get excited about truly exciting things. We look at this and go, whatever, let's keep reading. Where are those jewels and gold again? I, let's, let's look at that. The water is a big deal. So are the 12 crops of the tree of life. It was mostly an agrarian culture, and so they, they counted on, on, on agriculture providing food for them. And if there was too much rain or not enough rain or the weather didn't cooperate or the sun was a problem, you could have droughts and famines and, 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 and disease and all of this stuff. We're being told that this will never happen again. There's going to be plenty of food and abundance of food, and it's going to be perfect. I, I like fruit, and, and, and I'm often disappointed by fruit here on earth. But in, in the New Jerusalem, we're going to have the best avocados and nectarines and oranges and peaches and, and bananas and, and, and for Kramer, plantains and just everything that you're ever going to want. I, I get so mad when I spend money on a peach and I bite into it expecting one thing and I get something mealy. And then I vow I'm never going to, I got a big amen on that, I'm, I vow, I'm never going to buy peaches again, you know. Then they suck me in again. And I tell that produce manager, man, you should see what these are going to be like in the New Jerusalem. Of course, he runs the other way, so 
And, and here's something, and I know that this is an argument from silence. I get that, okay? But I think it is interesting. There's an absence in here of us eating meat, okay? Now, I'm not a vegetarian. I don't have a dog in this. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. I don't... Um, I'm not trying to make an argument. I'm just describing what I see here, okay? I like meat. I eat meat, okay? But I think this might be what it's like. And, and here you go. I'm not sitting around going, well, if there's no meat, I'm gonna, what's that going to be? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be sitting up in heaven going, in the New Jerusalem going, man, I could really use a good T-bone. What's wrong with this place up here? I'm not going to be doing that. It's going to be the New Jerusalem. Here you go. Let, let me give you this little illustration. Okay, I found this helpful for me anyway. You ever been on an airplane? Have you flown coach? All of us have flown, most of us if not all of us, flown coach, right? Boy, no, you guys are tired. Nobody's raising their hands this morning. I know you're getting on planes, okay? Now, here you go. I want to see them high. How many of you have ever had the opportunity to fly first class? All right? Now, here's the question. I've never paid for first class, but I've been bumped up to first class before, okay? How many of you have been bumped up to first class for free? That's sweet, isn't it? Okay, now, let me ask you this question. When they bumped you up to first class, they said, hey, uh, we're oversold in coach, but we have first class seats available. We'd like to move you into first class for free. Is your reaction to say, you know, I really like the tiny seats in coach and the way my knees are up around my ears and all of these people are in my breathing area? And the food, oh, the food in coach is so good. If we could bring all that stuff up to first class, then I'll go. Have you said that to them? No. Even if you've never been in first class, you're going, I know it's better than here. I'm not going to miss anything. You're going to go to first class. Frank said, the New Jerusalem's just like first class on U.S. Airways. It's better. Trust me. They always land on time in the New Jerusalem. (laughs) Just kidding about that. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. We've never seen men and women as they were intended to be. We've never seen animals and insects as they were intended to be. We've never seen nature unchained and undiminished as it was intended to be. We've only seen things cursed and dying. I don't want to stay in coach. I can't wait to get there. John tells us the leaves will heal the nations. There's going to be no more racism, ethnocentricity, bigotry, genocide. All that stuff will be gone. In, in heaven, the nations will not be eliminated, but rather they'll be healed. No longer will there be any curse. The fall has been completely re- Reversed. And again, John says there's no more night. Again, I would say this is a double meaning. Night is another word that was used by the ancients metaphorically just like the word sea, S-E-A. It's another one of those concepts that represents chaos, evil, wickedness, uncertainty, suffering, and pain. Because there is no more curse, John tells us, there's going to be no more of those things that the curse brought. Uh, Frederick Buechner writes this about the new Jerusalem. Everything is gone from this Jerusalem that made Jerusalem, like all cities, torn apart, dangerous, heartbreaking, and seamy. Now you walk the streets in peace. Small children play unattended in the parks. 
No stranger goes by whom you can't imagine a fast friend. The city has become what those who love the city always dreamed it would be. It's the new Jerusalem. That's the secret of heaven. It's the new Chicago. It's the new Leningrad. It's the new Hiroshima. It's the new Beirut. It's the new bus driver. It's the new hot dog man. It's the new lawyer. The new seamstress. And the new hairdresser. It's the new you. It's the new me. It's the new everybody. That's what we have to look forward to. This new community. And as we look forward to it, one of the things we have to remember is that the church is to be a purveyor of this new community, although it's just a little slice of it, here on earth. Jesus prays, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Part of what we're doing is we're trying to just bring a slice of heaven down here so that people can just taste a little bit of God and see that He is good. I was with a very good friend of mine this week who who lives in another part of the city and goes to a different church. But his life has been touched by this movement that redemption has been been a part of in, in starting the Redemption Foster Care and Adoption and AZ-127. He and his wife and his family, they have three kids. They've been touched by this. They've become foster care parents. And they're in the final process now of adopting a 16-year-old girl that has been with them for about 10 weeks who has never known a family, who has never had healthy parents, and who is now finally going to have a family. They're sharing just... Just a little sliver of what it's going to be like in the New Jerusalem here. We are to do that. But this, this little sliver is what we have to look forward to multiplied exponentially in every area of our lives. It's going to be perfect and beautiful and wonderful. And we won't miss a thing here on earth. And that's why we talk about this during Advent Because Jesus is coming again. It's what we're hoping for. It's what we want to arrive. We want all things reconciled and unified. And we want this new community. I'll close with this quote from Herman Bavink as he talks about, again, the new Jerusalem. He writes this. According to Scripture, the present world will neither continue forever nor will it be destroyed and replaced by a new one. Instead... It will be cleansed of sin and recreated, reborn, renewed, remodeled, and made whole. While the kingdom of God is first planted spiritually in human hearts, the future blessedness of this is not to be spiritualized. Biblical hope, rooted in the incarnation and resurrection, is a creational, this-worldly, visible, physical, bodily hope. It is real. The rebirth of human beings is completed in the glorious rebirth of all creation, the new Jerusalem, whose architect and builder is God Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Amen and amen. We'll see you Christmas Eve at 4.30 and 6. Let's pray. Sean will come and lead us in our time of response. God, thank You for this promise. Thank You that You are in heaven ruling over everything, ruling over all things that you've created all things and you're going to make all things new. You're going to restore us to you and you're going to restore creation. God, help us to live by that promise and that hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.